Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I am coming to you from New Orleans on St. Claude Street inside Shank Charcuterie. And we're here with owner, founder, mopper, curer, key locker upper, Christopher Dahl. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. How are you doing? Good. So you grew up hunting uh, with your grandfather. Right. What did you learn from him? What was the experience like? And, and where, where it was in Lafayette, correct? No, I was actually born in Lafayette. Uh, my grandfather lived in uh, Colorado in a town 
Eagle in between Vail and Aspen. And uh, he was a hunting guide there when he was a younger man. He was also worked on the family cattle ranch, so it was in the mountains. Uh, so uh, I would live with them in the summertime, basically, um, and Christmas break too. Whatever school break there was, I went to those grandparents' house. What would you hunt? What would you fish? Or were there? What was you know the appropriate time of the year for for which animal? Yeah, uh, fishing's kind of you can fish year round in Colorado. Um, so, but we generally didn't fish in the winter time because mm. we just weren't really down with being cold for that long. Sitting on an ice block. Exactly. <laughs> it's like they they got that on lockdown in Minnesota. Um, so winter time mostly a uh, rabbit. Uh, fall would be deer, elk, and uh, that like fall is actually your main hunting season in Colorado. So uh, other like smaller things, rabbits, uh, other animals, different times of the year. But that's kind of your big game. That's it. Fishing, like good fishing, where you can walk down a creek. Uh, it's going to be summertime after the thaw, so where you can get up to the higher mountains and all the beaver dams have thawed out and the mm. trout are swimming, <laughs> so that's more summer. What did he teach you in the ways of, after you killed it, preparing it, eating it, that you still carry with you today? What techniques still apply? Uh, it's... You know, it's, it's respect for the animal is using as much of it as possible, and really, there's no excuse not to use the whole thing. Um, so that's I practice that now. You know. Growing up, um, we eat turkey necks. That's like our family secret, and no one really ever goes for them, so we always grab them. Was there a particular animal and a piece of an animal that your grandfather was, this is the best secret, no, everyone throws this away, but actually this is the best part of the, the animal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, fish fins, actually. We would go, like, and where he lived, the fish were uh, trout. So there was brook trout, rainbow trout, and they, they're not, like, giant fish like large ones are a big one is going to be like a pound pound and a half <laughs> right it's like a decent sized one so uh if it's uh if it's pan fried you just basically dredge it in cornmeal and saute it in a little bit of fat in a pan and that would be that's like still my all time that's my mm. death row breakfast is fried fish and hash browns mm pan fried and, so, uh, so when you get that most people just eat the flesh because mm. on, on those type of fish you eat, you can eat the skin it's not like catfish skin right so uh, but in the process of that the uh, all the fins the dorsal fins and the tail fins they all get super crispy and it's like the ultimate fish uh, potato chip it's like it's just awesome and uh, like nobody eats fish fins so, right but that was like a thing he was like you know, it would be like you would just be waiting for somebody to get full and leave their fins on the plate and then go for it. You're like, um, I'll clean up the plates, and you're just shoveling fish fins in, in the right. back. From there, how did you get into charcuterie and salumi making, and how did you get into the the full butcher? Uh, so, um, uh, 
process of, um, I don't know, life happens and uh, I needed to make a life change at this certain point of my life, <laughs> according to the state of Colorado. <laughs> and uh, so I had been in a pretty serious car accident and uh, I was in a coma for a minute and when I got to where I was able to walk again, I rock climbing had kind of always been my thing that was sort of where, you know, I would just go into the mountains and go climb waterfalls in the wintertime when they were frozen or rock in the summer. And I'd always kind of had it in my mind that I wanted to be a Himalayan, you know, climber, but due to the severity of the accident that I had, if you, if you have a, a certain level of injury, it's really <laughs> iffy to go above a certain altitude mm. climbing-wise. Mm. So because of that accident, that kind of ruled out that. So I had to figure, all right, well, what, what am I going to do? Continuing to work and doing concrete work, like, paid well, but you're building a concrete box basically you're just building a different shape of square and it's just like money's great but i get in trouble with money so the other thing that i noticed that i could do that my head would actually shut off and i would get completely engrossed in was cooking so you know here it is time to make life change main options out the window second options just not appealing so third option is well, I can like actually try and do this cooking thing for real. Where you know I had restaurant jobs, uh, uh, making pizzas, whatever that sort of thing, but never really pursued it as I'm going to do this thing. And how did you get? I mean, cooking can take you to all different types of, of methods. You could go French, Italian, you know, vegan. Obviously, it's not vegan. How did you end uh, or get on the path of? Um, curing meats and full breakdown of animals is that from the past or was it just that's also where you knew you could be the most effective well at that point of life change I decided to go to culinary school which by the way is not necessary to get a restaurant job it's just I had noticed when I was out there trying to get into the restaurants I wanted to work at the guys that were getting hired were culinary school kids and uh I just got tired of getting shot down for these places, so I was like, I'll go to culinary school. Where did you go to school? Went to the Art Institute in Denver. At that time, uh, I was I was in Denver, and uh, so I went there, and um, it was, it's, it's like anything, once you make a decision to do something and give it your effort, if it's something you want to do, you're probably going to progress at a quicker rate than somebody who's doing something because they have to or not really into it. So at culinary school, I was doing the thing, and uh, it got to the part of garde which is, you know, the cold kitchen. And uh, during that part of, it was like sausage making, and I was in class with a bunch of people that had no clue how to take apart a fish or any other animal really and I was just like you know, well what's, what's, what's the deal with you guys this is not hard this is how you do it and so 
it just became that's that that was the introduction to the sort of professional side of it again it wasn't like i was doing it in a professional kitchen but culinary school was like this is this is culinary school says this is how you're supposed to do this thing and you have to do it this way to get your credits for this class so you took to it like a fish to water uh, it was just not it wasn't something that i had to try hard on it was right. you know everybody's got a thing that they're natural at there's people that are great at talking and i'm, I'm not one of them i have to like concentrate to make what's going on in my head that come out of my mouth what was the first char- charcuterie that you made that you felt was at a level of excellence uh, I was working for uh, my chef in San Francisco Stefan Terrier and uh, he I used to go work for him for free because I w- when I got to San Francisco like I, I went to San Francisco on a mission to go get into a good kitchen mm. and it was like that was my choice to go to San Francisco it was New York or San Francisco fell into my lap a San Francisco job so I started working for him and uh, it's it's not it's, San Francisco is not a you have one job town mm. so I had my main job which was the hotel job and then I had my 6am till noon job which was my other job so in the meantime from noon till 4 I always had free time so I would go and work for the chef you know build out the private parties whatever needed to be done just to like keep getting experience because I I started late so I needed to get a jump on these 20 year old culinary school kids so after after a minute when he saw I was gonna like stick around I could do what he said and he didn't have to worry about it then he started trusting me with the charcuterie and uh so it was working for him that that I first I first learned the uh, the technique you go to it's very technique method thing and then uh, then after that then you learn the science behind it mm. and after you learn the science and the math behind it then it's just combinations and combinations is from experience what's an early rookie mistake when people tend to do when making charcuterie for the first time um such a there's like it's a really it's a big umbrella there so um uh just you know like basic culinary uh principles time and temperature Hmm. (laughs) there's a reason that's a thing right what brought you or how did you end up back or in new orleans and louisiana after san francisco uh, there was a restaurant that was going to be open here, and uh, the chef here that was opening that, he had been out in San Francisco for a while cooking. And, and who he was came that? back here, Donald Link. And when he came back here and did his thing, he kept contact with the mushroom lady which is like the mushroom lady of San Francisco. He kept in contact with her and still used her for the mushroom. So she was from down here. And uh, my chef out there actually used to go forage mushrooms with her. So there's kind of this, you know, the chef here, my chef there, the mushroom lady. So they all 
had found out basically that this restaurant was going to open here and I was looking to um, get back down here and uh, so just from the communication between those three I found out that there was this job so I got a hold of uh, Donald and he offered me a job. Was that similar cooking to what you are known for now or was it a different world or a different type of uh, execution? The job that I had in San Francisco was uh, high-end Italian. Like, we, our, our, our charcuterie program was mentioned in the first San Francisco Michelin Guide. So, uh, so it was more, it was more in that area, high-end Italian, Salome. And the place that was going to be, that I came here to open is more, um, Louisiana charcuterie, which, you know, the Italian-French difference, there's a difference, it's kind of, it's it's really similar, actually, I mean, you can be nitpicky, and but it's, it's just better to look for the similarities, so, under the umbrella, charcuterie, salumi, a lot of the things are different, one's Italian, one's French. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break. And then we're going to come, come back and talk about Shank Charcuterie and how it came into existence. We'll be right back here on Snacky Tunes.
when did shank charcuterie start to form as an idea how did it become how did it come into existence so I I came here and opened a restaurant, and after that place, I got a job working for a, a different chef who was opening a, an Italian place that they had designs on doing what I had been a part of in San Francisco. So I. Uh, I went and talked to them and started working for them. They opened another spot as well. And uh, what was it? What was the name of the spot? The first one was Amano. It was. Uh, it was a. Uh, at the time, I guess it was more of a Roman area, regional Italian. And then the next, the, the same, the same chef opened another spot called uh, Ancora after that, which was Neapolitan Pizza and Salumi. So I did that. Um, after those two projects, the next thing that I worked on was uh, a butcher shop here in New Orleans, and uh, it was just like. It was to be straight butcher shop and uh, whole animal butchering. That was because th- at this point it was that was kind of that was sort of a thing. It was becoming a thing in the United States. The whole animal butcher shop. The guys in New York had already been doing it, uh, and it was spreading. You know, there was the place in Chicago, and so New Orleans. We started what was the one there. And what was um, it called? Cleaver and Company. And uh, it was while working there that I just, um, I decided that I wanted to do it for myself instead of keep opening spots for other people. So that was probably, I wanted to say 12 Got it. 2012. So, how did you begin to put together your own program? I mean, this place is, it feels different than the other butcher shops. It feels like very neighborhoody. It feels very homemade. It feels like if you're in a rush, this is probably not the place right. for you. That's, that's how, did, right. how did you begin to put the concept together, or, and, you know, the, what is the philosophy that you developed, uh, and how did you get into St. Rock Market as well? Well, at the time, uh, around 12 when it was when the decision was made to open a spot um, I had to find a place first and there's a couple of food corridors here in uh, New Orleans Magazine Street Ferret, Oak Street sort of your uh, main food corridors there's also Mid City and uh it was. It just ended up being a thing of I wasn't going to be able to uh, doing that kind of rent was not going to be realistic. It's a lot of sausage. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, in the process of looking for spaces, the where we are now on Saint Claude Avenue was. It was. 
it was just starting to turn around. Like, you know, this was, for a few years there, this was crack central. You just didn't, there was no reason to be over here after dark if you weren't uh, <laughs> giving fuel to the where there's smoke, there's fire saying. Uh, so anyhow, they built a school on the next block over, police presence up, and uh, neighborhood started to turn around. The city had put a lot of money into redoing the St. Rock Market. That winter of uh, 14, which was the 14-15 winter, uh, it was really rainy. And uh, the market, there's, there's a farmer's market here. And the lady that's in charge of the farmer's market knows the guys that are have the lease for the, uh, the St. Rock market. And she knew, had talked to them, and they were looking for some meat person to go in there. And uh, so she told me that they were looking, and I said, yeah, you know, sure, give them my number, I'll talk to them. And uh, so I uh, spoke to them about going in there, and, uh, you know, the, the I live here, too. Like, I literally live upstairs from here. And uh, so over here, there wasn't this butcher shop sort of thing over here at the time. And uh, so uh, we talked to the market guys and, you know, it seemed like, yeah, that, that's definitely something to keep in mind. Well, that winter, it turned out to be really rainy, like just an insane amount of groundwater. So when, they, when I was doing the plumbing in here, uh, all the trenches were filled with water and it wasn't going anywhere. I could pump it out and it'd be back full in an hour. So basically I had to sit for three months and wait for the groundwater level to drop so they could put the pipes in and put the concrete back in and all that. Um, so that pushed the uh, January that we were planning on open. It's going to be more looking like March. Right. So uh, we were ready to go. Couldn't really afford to be sitting on this place, not making money anymore. So we decided to do the market. Oh, interesting. So how long were you in the market before this place opened? And did you do both at the same time, or was it just a temporary? For a minute, we were doing butchering only out of here. But due to uh, kitchen Issues. We were also making our food here and taking it across the street there. Uh, that's that's how that went down. So from April till November, we were kind of doing both, mostly over there. But I had a guy here who was awesome, and uh, I could, you know, we would get together in the morning, make a list of what needed to get done. I was over at the market, Elliot was here, and uh, so from April till November it was that. Then in November came back over here because Elliot was going back, and uh, it was full time here only since November of 15. What's interesting about this place is that, like I said before, it's got a neighborhood feel, but it's just you. You are the you're the man who opens up, you live upstairs, but you also make 
beautiful food here. It's not just a butcher shop. How do you devise your menu, obviously besides just, you know, what's in there, or what do you think about your philosophy for the food that you serve along being a very active butcher counter? It's, um... It depends on the cabinet, really, the, the butcher cabinet. Uh, it's right now, it's fully representative of what the people in this neighborhood want. Mm. Uh, that's, uh, and did that evolve over time? Did you have stuff in there that you were sure was going to sell, but didn't, and then people asked for different items? Yeah, that's like a constant. Uh, yeah. You... Uh, you just have to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. What's something that you were so sure was going to sell but didn't? And what do you constantly get asked for that you're not putting in there? Uh, I cannot sell mortadella. If I call it bologna, I can sell it. Uh, lardo. I cannot get rid of lardo, but if I call it uh, fat back, I can get rid of it. Um, it's just, it's again, it's like... You know, so you've got like the Italian French, and then you've got the French Louisiana. So uh, it's I'm st- like I still go through that. I still, you know, I'll come up with something that I believe to be awesome, but it's 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 getting people to trust that it's not. Uh, uh, I don't even know what word to use. It's just getting people to trust to try it. Do you think that there are things that you will put on your menu just as a way to be like, let me cook this for you and show you how it's cooked so you can come in and buy it and cook it for yourself? Uh, you know, the best um, the best current example of that that I have is hanger steak. I, uh, I grew up and if you're gonna go out and like do the big deal steak dinner, you got ribeye. So that's what I grew up with. And I thought that was the steak to have for a long time. Uh, I worked in a hotel in San Francisco and I ate so much filet mignon. I don't care if I ever eat filet mignon again, but uh, I tried hanger steak and blew my mind. Like. Just, I didn't know that's what it was called. You know, you butcher an animal, and if you don't go to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, they actually have schools for butchering. If you don't know what all the cuts are from the North American Meat Processor Guide, <laughs> all of them have a name and a number. And like, I've seen a hanger steak before. I didn't know that's what it was called. It was just part of the guts in there when you get a cow. So uh, hanger steak. I was like, it just blew my mind. Like, I, I take that any day over almost any other cut, and uh, so I put that on my menu for my steak and eggs. That's what my steak is on the steak and eggs is a hanger steak and two sunny sides. And uh, now I get people that will walk in and buy hanger steak. So that's that's a you know um, that's a thing. It's a trust thing, too. Uh, if you go to... I, I live down the street from an old Italian butcher, and when I'm in there, I can see how they've had customers for 30 years, and they guide them. They say, you don't want that this week. It's not so great. Get this right. or anything. So 
do you feel that you're beginning to establish the trust in the neighborhood? You're beginning to... People are like, oh, well, if he put it in there, I've never had it, but I I trust him and he's going to guide me in the right direction. I would say yes on that. Uh, You know, my... Most of the people that come in here, I would say 90% of the people that come in here are neighborhood people, which is... That's great. That's what I wanted in the first place. You know, the, the... like you were talking about it feels like a neighborhood place that's just that's a thing that happened it's not something you can force I mean you can live somewhere and it doesn't mean your neighborhood supporting it but my neighborhood supports this and uh, uh, you know New or- the thing about New Orleans is a lot of people cook here you know a lot of people cook and they'll check you out and if you're good they'll come back and then they'll tell their neighbors or their friends about it and so it's a word of mouth thing and like that just happened it just happened to work out that way for this shop last last question where do you source from and how do you find those relationships uh when i when i was working for the, the people that started Cleaver and Company, we went to um, we went out to um, what everybody calls Cajun Country, and uh, we were actually just going on this Boudin road trip. But we were also going to the slaughterhouse that we were going to use for the shop, and so we're stopping at every conceivable Boudin spot on the way there and back from the slaughterhouse. And uh, when I left that butcher shop, I, I, the guys, you know, like Andy, who's the head butcher at the Eunice Superette in Eunice, like, awesome guy. Like, like, there's, there's, like, just, there's no question in my mind about that guy, you know, it was like, I, if I had a butcher, if I lived close to Eunice, I would go there and Andy would be my butcher, mm. you know? So uh, I like that shop. They're real people, you know? Uh, it's not like I'm driving up to Corporateville and buying a vacuum bag, you know? I can. I have been in the kill room at the Eunice Superette, seen those guys taking care of business. I've been in the refrigerated room with, you know, 40 calf carcasses hanging. Uh, been in Andy's butcher room and watched him take apart a half a cow and quicker than I have ever seen it done in my life. So uh, that you know it was, that was just a thing. That was that was one thing that I didn't have a question when I opened this spot. I didn't have that question. You know, like I knew I was going to be using them. They're they're my USDA slaughterhouse. Other relationships just uh, they happen. Over a period of time, you know, there's there's some guys that I use now uh, um, that they work. One of the guys worked for another farm and went out and started his own program. And so, uh, you know, that's that's just the, how it happened. What's that program called? There's a their their farm is Home Place Pastures. And uh, they do beef and lamb and hogs there. They're getting, they're close, I believe, to getting to be able to have their own processing facility. They're like, 
I think it's going to happen August, September is what they were hoping for. It's just so they're going through that process. But you know, it's there's there's several farms around here, uh, Lewis and Rebecca, that are uh, uh, Chavapila. That's that's amazing. You know, it's some of the best pork that's around. Uh, there's, so there's there's farms around that do it, and it's just uh, I, I guess it's just a word of mouth thing, you know. There's quite a few restaurants, and restaurant people talk to each other, and farmers talk to each other. So it's it's uh, you know every so often somebody rolls in and hey, you know I I raised hogs. <laughs> okay, well. Load it up. Let's see. Well, Chef, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, where can people find out information? Where can people uh, get at you? Where can people see uh, all of your beautiful work? Uh, you can come by the shop. It's 2352 St. Claude Avenue. We have a website, uh, Shank Charcuterie. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the computer stuff. Perfect. Well, thank you. We're going to take a quick musical break, and then we will be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes.
I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Uh, earlier in the show, that was Street Smells and Pill. If you like that, you can check out those episodes in our archives. Head to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you might get your podcasts. If you like it, leave us a review, give us some stars, what have you. In the studio today, we have True Dreams. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I love that you got dressed up for radio. <laughs> it happens so much less than people think they are, but I... Do you feel like it's a mentality, like you have to get into the outfits to get into the show? Mm. Are these actually, uh, let me ask, this is what you wear when you perform? It's just a coincidence. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, we do wear this every time. Where did the outfit come from? Oh, and how far into the performances did you figure out your signature look? Hmm. Took us a couple shows to figure out which outfit like really felt good. But uh, yeah, we tried a couple different things. Yeah, and we've we've really worn them like every show, so they're starting to fall apart. But, have have uh, a bit of like a live show smell. If you yeah, will. yeah, they don't. Uh, you know, it's not the freshest thing in my wardrobe. Yeah, maybe like you're like, well, the dry cleaning bill is a little high. <laughs> so, uh, well, let's let's start with Hannah first. Uh, you quit school at 16 to become a hairdresser to get to New York faster. What was your mentality? What where were you living before, and, and what drew you to the city? Well, I I was born in New York, born in Manhattan, and raised in Jersey City. So I kind of always grew up in the shadows of the big city. And as soon as I started getting into music as a teenager, I knew that it was where I had to be. And uh, 
Yeah, so the, I, I moved to Florida with my dad when I was like 13 and um, just wanted to get the hell out. <laughs> what were you listening to in high school? Um, a lot of a lot of old school punk rock, 70s punk, um, 80s hardcore. Who were your favorites? Um, I guess one, one of my favorite punk bands at the time was Crass. Mm. Um, who I actually I got to uh, to meet um, in uh, in I got, in England. I got to go and spend a few days at Dial House, um, which is their sort of like anarchist community that they somehow still operate. Um, I guess like forty years later, um, and it was a place that you know back in the day you could kind of stop through and just you know have a place to stay in exchange for like just contributing like a good meal or a song or a poem what do you contribute um just good company hopefully <laughs> good vibes <laughs> yeah uh you know they always say never meet your heroes how was it meeting your heroes it was it was really inspiring um i got to meet g and penny and um they were just some of the kindest people I've ever met. And, uh, yeah, I got to pick their brains and, and play with their cat. <laughs> it was cool. And, Angela, you started off as an artist. Oil, You did mm -hmm. oil painting. Mm -hmm. But you I also did. made a zine about slow dancing. I did. Can you please tell me about that? <laughs> yes. Um, well, I love Motown, and I love um, 50s and 60s slow songs, and I also love slow dancing. I think it's really fun and sweet and uh i'm a romantic at heart and i think that uh i don't know it's just a really beautiful thing and so i made a zine about it because i have uh i've been kind of logging my favorite slow dancing songs over the years and compiled a huge list and i thought it would be um pretty funny actually if i made a zine what are some of your Hopefully top it's funny. slow dancing songs well funny you should ask i have the top five um, but number one is Stand By Me by Benny King, which everyone knows. And you're like, yeah, yeah, of course. But it's so good. What What are the other two through five? Uh, oh, gosh. Um, well, I can't remember right now, but <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Harvest right. Moon, Neil Young. Oh, that's a good one. Mm. And is there a particular form of slow dancing? Do you do it with like, you know, you can fit a balloon between people? <laughs> is it is it, you know, cheek on the shoulder? Oh. Well, I guess I wouldn't want that's a good question. I wouldn't want to do it with someone I didn't feel like I wanted to be close with. So the balloon would be good if there was someone that maybe I didn't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you started playing music back in 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, you were here in New York, right? Yes. Yeah, I just moved here. And what was the band and... Uh, the band was called The Baby Skins and uh, very like uh, soft, uh, two females, myself and my friend Crystal, um, harmonies, kind of like a little eerie, creepy, but hopefully beautiful too. And then you also joined another band and went on tour over to Europe. Yeah, we did. We joined um, the French band Herman Dune um, as their backup singers and they were so nice to us and so hospitable and they let us open for them for quite a few shows. We were really lucky. Which is super cool that they're like, okay, you open, but then you also come play backup for us. <laughs> it was nice cause I'm shy. So being a backup singer was pretty great cause you can just feel like oh, I can dance and do what I want. And they're looking at the lead singer. And then, uh, Hannah, you didn't start playing music until a few years ago. 
Correct. Learning drums in your apartment, much to the chagrin of your roommates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, I, I uh, well, I ha- I've had an interest in drums for a long time, and but I've always lived in apartments or condos where I wasn't able to play them, and so I finally saved up for an electronic kit. And uh, I would play it with my headphones thinking it was okay, but sometimes it's worse because you can just hear the the banging noises. Right, that, that <laughs> like plastic, like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, one one day my roommate was like, listen, man, like, I know you love the e-drums, but like, can you just move <laughs> them into your bedroom? <laughs> I mean, at least they didn't say stop playing, just like, please just not hear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can we hear a song? Yeah, yeah we'd love to it. play one. What are you going to play for us first? Uh, this one's called Reaching. Here we go, live on Snacky Tunes. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Reaching for the pot, reaching for the pot. Reaching, 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 reaching. Nobody wants to hear your preaching. You two met in 2014 on a music video shoot. Mm-hmm. What was the band? What was the music video shoot? What were you doing? Mm, um, our friends are in a band called Crazy in the Brains, and they're having a video shoot in a hotel in Chelsea, I think. Um, and it was supposed to be like a like a funny rap video, and everyone was like um, supposed to be drinking, but instead of drinking alcohol, everyone was drinking YooHoo. And I basically went by myself and I was like, I don't know who to talk to. And then Hannah and our friend Kat walked in and uh, they just looked really cool and funny and friendly. And I was like, I think I can talk to them and hit it off with both of them. Was it friendship at first sight? It was. (laughs) And then when did you decide to make a band? Mm. It's about... Was it a year later? Yeah, I think a year later. Yeah. Did it evolve over time? Was it like, we should be in a band together after a couple of drinks? Or was <laughs> it just one of the, we should be in a band together? And the next day you were started to write songs. Yeah, as soon as Hannah told me she's always, you know, she's been wanting to play drums for a long time and play in a band, I was like, we should play together. I think I was, I was a little shy about it at first, being like less experienced. And then after I felt like I'd had enough practice, I was like, all right, like, Let's, make, let's do yeah, this. Yeah, <laughs> you're awesome. Yeah. And your process of writing songs is really cool because a lot of people, when they form bands, someone always writes the lyrics or someone writes the melody, but you two like to do it together. How is the process? How do the songs evolve? Where where does uh, the inspiration and the formation come from? Hmm. Well, it, it actually started with uh, Angela's idea. 
Mm. Oh. <laughs> with uh, kind of like the there, there's a game called Exquisite Corpse, which is a it's a drawing game where you fold a piece of paper into three parts, and someone draws the head, someone draws the torso, and someone draws the legs. Mm-hmm. And then when you unfold it, it's this weird like monster looking thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we basically have done that with a few of our songs. How does it work in the songwriting process? Well, we've started, like, talking about a mood uh, before we play the game and how we're feeling, and we'll usually write the the music first, Mm -hmm. and then you just, like, leave one word out of, which is, like, the last word of, of the first sentence, and then the next person starts it with the first as the first word of their sentence so you get you get a lot of like funny stuff and stuff that's unusable but then i I feel like it pulls a lot of interesting things like out of your subconscious mind too that maybe you wouldn't think of otherwise definitely how many tries do you do you need to go through the process to get the lyrics to a point or where when do you stop using that as the device and then you're like okay we'll make a song out of out of this Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess we kind of just look at it and we're like, which parts can we use? And we'll take little snippets out and fit it into a melody that we like, that we've made up. Um, It was really important to me to play in a band where I felt like everything was 50-50 or like a real band. Because a lot of the time, um, you know, like you said, someone's the songwriter and someone, their only role is to play drums or to play guitar. And it just feels so good if everyone's participating equally and... Yeah. Can we hear another song? Yes, please. <laughs> what are you going to play for us? Uh, the song's called Pavement. Shit. 
my face lies on pavement. Angela, you're a pastry chef and baker in the yes. city. Where do you work? Um, What's your specialty? Ooh, <laughs> I'm actually um, going to start a new job soon. Oh. There's a new bakery opening in Williamsburg. Um, I'll be the head baker of. So. Can you say what it is or is it still a secret? Maybe it's a little bit of a secret. But, okay. um, That's fine. What's your specialty? <laughs> I love to do cakes. Um Oh, I love to eat sweets so much, so I'm really passionate about <laughs> any kind of baked good. But I love to do cakes and, like, very intricate um, piping, like wedding cakes I love. How do you balance being in a band, which <laughs> is out so late, and a baker, which is up so early? Oh, my gosh. Sometimes it's really hard. Um, yeah, I've got to plan it pretty well. And Hannah knows I'm tired sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and what um, hair salon did you end up working at in the city? I actually work at a barber shop now. I quit the salon life, um, and I work at Persons of Interest in Williamsburg. Oh, that place is great. Thanks. Why did you quit the salon life? Well, I originally came here to do like a pretty intense apprenticeship at a place called Arojo. There's mm -hmm. a couple of them in the city, and it was like a, a an incredible program. But uh, it was just super intense, and you know, it's it's actually. Easier to make money as a hair cutter, in my opinion, at a barbershop because your clients come back more frequently. And so. Fair enough. Uh, you two are working on your first full length, right? Mm -hmm. Recording this month? Or I guess, yeah, it's August already. Yeah, I know. I yeah. know. Where did this... I have no idea. Pack it in, people. It's the last month of summer. <laughs> uh, where are you recording? Uh, who are you recording with? What's the process? We're going to go up to New Hampshire and record with this amazing band called Crushed Out, our friends Frank and Moselle. They have a home recording studio in the middle of the woods, and it'll be really beautiful and relaxing, and uh, they're so talented, such talented musicians. It'll be really fun. How long are you going to be up there for? I think two days. We're going to try and bang it out. Or try to stretch it out, bring good <laughs> vibes, maybe yeah. make some cakes. Yeah. See Ooh. if you can trade like a day for a cake. <laughs> I'll try that. Uh, last question. Where's the bodega? Where you got your name from? <laughs> it's in Ridgewood. I think it's on Cypress. I don't know how much longer it'll be there because it's, it's closed down. Um, was it closed when you got the name? Like just the sign was left? I think or it, it was closed still? like right around the time that we became a band, which I don't, I don't know dead. what that means. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, maybe well, I mean, funny. you're carrying, I mean, true dreams, you're just carrying on the, the legacy. Yeah, yeah. It's true. been transferred. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was there for 40 years. Yeah, maybe they had a good run. Yeah, maybe they had a good run. <laughs> Runs are tough. Yeah. Life is hard. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for both for coming on. Thanks so much for it's having really, us. It's really nice to meet you, too. I want to thank, thank Christopher Dahl of Shank Charcuterie for being our food guest. We are going to be back next week with another live episode of Snacky Tunes. Oh, where can people find you? Get your records book you check out the style that you're wearing since they can't see it's on radio <laughs> maybe look at some cake inspiration yeah we're on instagram uh true dreams band uh we're on facebook and we have a uh, three songs up that we, we recorded with our friend casey holford um on Bandcamp. love Bandcamp. yeah they're the best i know we love them too what are you gonna take us out with uh this song's called female artists perfect 
Well, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.